Army of the Potomac, outnumbering their opponents, sometimes two to one, armed and equipped, the finest army on the planet, yet unable to defeat Lee's ragamuffins. We'll find out what was wrong with the commanders of the Army of the Potomac when we talk to Stephen Tafe on Civil War Talk Radio. Is writing your passion? Is finding and honing your craft your goal? Come celebrate the art, craft, and business of writing with some of the most successful writers in the country at the 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference this October 20th through 22nd in San Diego. Have you been working hard at your writing? Are you in need of the energy boost a great conference provides? Do you want to self-publish but feel intimidated by the maze you need to negotiate to do so? Whether you're an aspiring or advanced writer, whether you write fiction or nonfiction, whether you're looking to publish through a major house or self-publish, you will learn with the best at the La Jolla Writers Conference. Exceptional and uniquely accessible faculty, varied genres, small classes for fiction and nonfiction writers, an aspiring setting, and the chance to participate in read and critique classes with renowned agents and editors set this conference apart. Ready to jumpstart your career? Then join us this October. Come see why the La Jolla Writers Conference was chosen by Writers Digest magazine as a conference well worth your money. The 6th Annual La Jolla Writers Conference, this October 20 through 22. Check us out at LaJollaWritersConference.com or call us at 858-467-1978. See you in San Diego this October. And in between, put your pen to the paper or your fingers to the keyboard and write. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and our guest today is Dr. Stephen Tafe author of Commanding the Army of the Potomac, the study of the corps and army-level commanders of that famous organization. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about uh, the beginnings of the army and its organization under McClellan, his reluctance to choose anyone to command, to organize the army into corps and uh, choose commanders, and Lincoln's imposition of four core commanders upon the army, whether McClellan wanted it or not. Uh, Stephen, that means McClellan ended up commanding an army with people not of his choosing, not ones that he trusted or who trusted him necessarily. That that couldn't have been good. No, no, it wasn't. And uh, when the Peninsula Campaign begins, the first major battle down there, the Battle of Williamsburg, it's going to be so misfought. McClellan's going to be so angry about the way it's fought that after the battle he will telegraph Lincoln and say, I've got to get basically I have to get rid of these corps commanders. I need to reorganize the army as I see fit. And Lincoln will respond by saying no, because if you do that, it's going to cause a major ruckus in the army. 
because all four, well, there are three in the peninsula, all three of these corps commanders have powerful congressional allies, and they have powerful allies within the Army. But what Lincoln did tell McClellan is that he could reorganize the Army within limits, and McClellan's going to take that opportunity to expand his Army from the three corps that were on the peninsula to five corps. He's going to add two new corps, which will be the fifth and the sixth corps, and he's going to put his own guys in charge of those corps, uh, Fitzjohn Porter for the fifth corps and William Frank. Franklin for the Sixth Corps, and that will be his way of getting some of his people in these important uh, command positions. So, going forward in the peninsula, he's now got some people that he wants, but not others. And as as everyone listening to the show knows, the the peninsula campaign does not end well; does not end with the capture of Richmond. Uh, but instead of McClellan defeated at the, the Seven Days Battles, uh, did anyone? emerge from that as perhaps the leader of the future? Uh, the one who performs best during the seven days is Fitz John Porter, the commander of the Fifth Corps. He is the man who won for the Army of the Potomac at Malvern Hill. He uh, fought well, I think, at Gaines Mill and at Hanover 10 earlier than that. And McClellan realized this. He, he wrote later on in his memoirs that Fitz John Porter was all in all the best corps commander he had with him. So if there is a, a shining star to come out of that, that unhappy campaign, it would have been Porter. Now, McClellan, after his defeat in the peninsula, is not so much removed from the Army of the Potomac as the Army is removed from him, uh, with the, the divisions and, and brigades being shifted out from under his command up to northern Virginia, where, where they come under Pope's command. And now you've got another set of leaders there. Who, uh, who appoints the corps commanders that, that Pope is, is running? Uh, well, all corps commanders are ultimately approved of by Lincoln. Lincoln had the final say over all corps commanders. And what will usually happen is that the general-in-chief, if there was one at the time, and the secretary of the war, and the commander of that army will meet, and they will decide, these are the guys we want, and then they'll go to Lincoln and get his approval, and Lincoln will almost always say, yeah. Uh, so the original three corps commanders in Pope's army are, would be um, um, Siegel and Banks and, and McDowell. And uh, in each case, how they became the corps commanders is a little bit different, but it's Lincoln's call, ultimately. Now, of course, there would be circumstances, uh, a battlefield casualty or something, where you need somebody right now. You can't wait to ask the president. So, so somebody could be appointed on a temporary basis. Is that right? Uh, yes. And in fact, sometimes the Army of the Potomac commander will appoint an officer as a temporary corps commander for long periods of time, just so he wouldn't have to go get Lincoln's approval. Some of these guys are temporary corps commanders for six months or more. Well, like the uh, young faculty working the, the term, the fixed-term jobs, uh, sometimes years at a time, uh, but the university doesn't want to actually hire them and pay them benefits and right. everything they deserve, so uh, the system can be abused. Uh, so, so the Army of the Potomac was doing the same thing. Right. Right. Uh, adjunct corps commanders, very interesting. Now, the uh, the campaign that follows then, this brings us up to the, the second Manassas campaign, and this also does not go well for the Army of the Potomac. In particular, you have the, the incident with uh, Porter, who did so well in the peninsula, coming under all kinds of criticism for what he does at second Manassas. Uh, what, what happened there, and, and was he guilty? Uh, well, 
reporter in his corps had been ordered up to reinforce Pope's army, and they get there just as the Second Battle of Bull Run gets underway. And Pope will give Porter orders to attack uh, on the left of the Union army. And uh, Porter will basically say he can't do it uh, because he says there are Confederate soldiers there, and Pope doesn't really believe him. Uh, and the next day, the Confederates will, will overwhelm Pope's army. But what got Porter into trouble is not so much the problems at that second bull run, but Porter had been sending messages to his friend Ambrose Burnside, complaining about Pope and complaining about being in Pope's army and saying that Pope was basically incompetent and that he wishes he was back to McClellan. And Ambr they're intended just for Burnside, but they're put in official dispatches to the War Department and Burnside felt like he had no choice but to forward those messages to the War Department because they're in official War Department dispatches. Uh, and so it's right there in black and white, and it seems to say that Porter had tried to badmouth his commander throughout the whole campaign. And Pope is going to be furious about this. He will complain to the Lincoln administration, complain to Lincoln about this. And after the Battle of Second Bull Run, Pope Porter will be removed temporarily from his corps. Now, when McClellan is put back in charge of all the soldiers in the Washington area, he's going to ask Lincoln to reinstate Porter because he needs him for the upcoming campaign. But once McClellan is gone in November of 1862, then the uh, Army machinery is going to move against Porter, and ultimately he will be court-martialed, found guilty, and dismissed from the Army, which is probably the most drastic thing that happened to a corps commander, the Army of the Potomac, during the war, except for those who were killed. Well, what, do you think he deserved it? Uh, no. I think that there are other Corps commanders who committed greater sins uh, who did not get cashiered from the Army. I think he made a mistake, but I don't think the punishment uh, warranted the, the, the crime warranted the punishment. And, but so his real mistake was, was those messages criticizing Pope. In my opinion, yeah. It's like, uh, not that I... I always draw modern analogies, but you send an email to a guy in the next office or the next cubicle, the boss is a butthead, and uh, you know it gets forwarded to everybody by mistake, and now you're in big trouble. Uh, he should not have sent those things to Burnside, who conscientiously forwards them on to, uh, to the War Department. That, that was, uh, did not go well for him, clearly. When, when, an interesting figure up to this point in the Army of the Potomac we haven't mentioned is Joseph Hooker, who is, I guess, commanding a division uh, in the Army up through Second Bull Run. Right. You mention in your book that McCollin never seemed to grasp what Hooker was up to politically. Uh, why, why couldn't McCollin, what was he up to, and why couldn't McClellan see it? It's, it's something of a mystery. Uh, Joseph Porter will command a division in the Third Corps, and Porter doesn't—he doesn't like anybody who is, who is his superior officer to begin with. He thinks he can do McClellan's job better than McClellan can. Hey, this is Hooker, or you said Porter. I'm sorry, yes, Okay, we were talking about Hooker. Right, go ahead, please. Right, and he's going to organize around him in the Third Corps this this cadre of disgruntled people that includes Kearney and includes Bernie. And McClellan is, is often paranoid about people like uh, uh, Heinzelman and Keyes and those sort of people, but he never really seems to pick up that there's this guy in his army in the Third Corps, Hooker, who is undermining him at every turn. And not only that, but Hooker is also, also cultivating allies in and out of Congress to help 
support his career. And Hooker's ultimate goal is to displace McClellan and to become commander of the Army of the Potomac. And why McClellan doesn't pick up on this, I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's particularly ironic because McClellan did the same thing to Winfield Scott to get him out as general-in-chief and take his job. But now he doesn't see somebody doing just the same thing to him from the level below. Yeah, that's a good point. No, he doesn't. In fact, McClellan is going to support Hooker's rise through the ranks from division commander to corps commander because he appreciates Hooker's fighting ability. And Hooker does reasonably well, uh, at least at the division and corps level. Uh, he is a hard fighter. That's the one thing he's got going for him. And he fought hard in the peninsula, and he fought hard in Antietam later. That's true. Well, he does end up getting the opportunity to command the army. Eventually, we get to the Battle of Antietam. Uh, we get to McClellan's uh, inability to to bring the army to bay, uh, or to bring his army to bear on, on Lee's army, which is at bay against the river. There. Let me ask the question of you, though. I was recently reading a book by a colleague of mine here at East Carolina, Michael Palmer, uh, wrote a underappreciated book called Lee Moves North, which is a sort of extended essay on Lee's strategy in the invasions of the 1863 And he argues, Palmer argues, that McClellan moved quite rapidly in the Antietam campaign. Even before the Lost Order was discovered, his units are already in motion, and that Lee erred in assuming McClellan would just be inert, would just sit there and, and do nothing. Um, Lee understands quickly enough he's made a mistake when McClellan converges on him rapidly, but most people say that's because of the lost order. Palmer argues, no, McClellan was already on the move, uh, and, and he doesn't get enough credit. Do you have any thoughts on that? I agree with half of that. I, I certainly... When McClellan is put back in charge of all the forces in Washington after the Battle of the Second Bull Run, the Army's a mess, and McClellan's genius is to take that disorganized mob and reorganize them in an amazingly short period of time. Uh, he has them ready to go within days, and so he gets out of the chute pretty quickly, marching north into Maryland. But I think once he starts marching, he doesn't move as fast as he could have. And uh, part of it's McClellan, part of it is, is that his subordinates don't move particularly well, particularly William Franklin, but he complains about the slowness of Burnside's march, uh, too. So I think the, the thing that McClellan did right was get those soldiers organized and ready to go, but once they are moving, I don't think they move as fast as they could have. And then, of course, once he gets them all together at Antietam, he's not willing to uh, to take the risk of, of putting in uh, the Sixth Corps and, and committing the last reserve of the army, the last reserve of the Republic, uh, as, as he is warned. So the the opportunity there is lost. And as a result, Lincoln finally runs out of patience with McClellan. And now we've got Joseph, no, skipping over, now we've got Ambrose Burnside in command. Uh, a few words about Burnside. Uh, uh, what, what's his story? In, in retrospect, Burnside seems like a terrible choice, but at the time it made sense 
because Burnside won. He had a winning record. He had commanded the force that sent down the North Carolina coast and helped seize the North Carolina coast. He has experience in independent command, which nobody else in the Army of the Potomac did after McClellan was removed. Uh, and he got along with almost everybody. He got along with Lincoln and Lincoln's administration. He got along with the McClellan folks as well. Um, and, and he seems like a good, capable, decent guy. So it made sense to put Burnside in command of that army. I don't know who else would have done what would have fit the bill at the time. Um, uh, Burnside had commanded the Ninth Corps, which he will bring up with him from uh, Carolina when McClellan's army ran into trouble at the Battle uh, And then he will participate, or the Corps will participate in the Second Bull Run campaign. And then Burnside will lead a wing of McClellan's army in the uh, march towards Antietam. And he doesn't perform very well at Antietam. Uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with Burnside's bridge, where he dithers all day outside of this bridge instead of attacking Lee's right flank. And by the time the campaign's over, uh, McClellan and Burnside, who had once been pretty tight, are McClellan in particular will complain that Burnside is an inefficient and effective commander, which which he was during the Maryland campaign. But again, from Lincoln's perspective, Burnside seems like a pretty good choice. And and his choices certainly are limited. There just aren't that many people with anything approaching the, the proven ability to command such a large army. And Burnside is also gifted with self-knowledge. He, he tells the government, I'm not qualified for this. And he sure is right. In fact, one of the reasons why he took command of the army is because Lincoln sent a, a political general named Wadsworth to tell him that if you don't take command of the Army of the Potomac, I'm going to give it to Hooker. And Burnside doesn't like Hooker all that much, so he's willing, under those conditions, to take command of the army. Well, that brings us then to, to Hooker after the, the sorry defeat at Fredericksburg in December 1862, and then the, the mud march. I hope the weather is nice here in Texas, but it's sort of mud march weather outside here in North Carolina. Uh, after that, uh, Burnside is taken out, and Hooker steps in. And now we have uh, maybe second only to McClellan in terms of intriguing characters. Uh, you wrote this about McClellan, or I'm sorry, about Hooker, after describing what he does uh, organizing the army and, and then being defeated at Chancellorsville. Uh, you wrote, there was no end to the theories people presented to explain Hooker's peculiar behavior. Some blamed his excessive drinking, but others argued his decision to abstain from alcoholic beverages was the problem. Some pointed to the injuries he sustained on 3rd May at the Chancellorsville. Some stated his humiliation was due to divine retribution for his blasphemous statements and immoral lifestyle. Uh, whatever the cause, and this is the great thing about a show like this, instead of uh, reading the next chapter, I can step and say, well, what do you think the cause was? Uh, what, what, where do you come down on those theories? Well, the fact of the matter is I'm not sure what happened to Hooker at Chancellorsville. I'd list all those theories, and there's some plausibility to all of them, but the best I can come up with is that he just lost his nerve. When the time came for him to step up to the plate, he couldn't do it. And I, I can't find any more detailed explanation than that. It's just a failure of nerve, a, a lack of perhaps moral courage. And that's the best I can come up with. Well, I, I think that's very interesting. I, I wrote a, uh essay in Gabor Borod's book, The Lincoln Enigma, about what would have happened if Lincoln had taken command of the Army of the Potomac, which he threatened to do on several occasions. 
And it, it seemed to me that Lincoln had the moral courage to, to make very difficult decisions, and his generals often lacked that. And, and, and Hooker at Chancellorsville is just such an example. Here he has his army, Hooker has his army behind Lee's army, on the flank. All he has to do is just move forward and, and end the war. But he can't do it. Right, not only that, but this he, he loses his nerve even before he's wounded on May 3rd. Some people say it's the injury that did him in, but he refuses to march, you're right, that, that extra dozen miles uh, long before the wounds incapacitate him. So we don't know what it is there. I should say, I don't think Lincoln would have made a good commander. While he did have moral courage, he also had, I think, too much sensitivity uh, to human suffering to have uh, uh, excelled. He, he did not have the hardness that men like Jackson or Sherman or Grant had, the willingness to just throw lives into the cause. Uh, I, I think it, it would have been difficult for him to do that. But uh, the music again tells us we have to take a short break. We'll come back for another discussion with Stephen Tafe, author of Commanding the Army of the Potomac on Civil War Talk Radio.